Customer discovery is the lifeblood of product teams to identify the most important customer needs to solve next. Often, it's the product and UX members of the trio who take lead on facilitating this discovery. But what about the other customer-facing teams in an organization? How do product teams best partner with these teams to understand customers' unmet needs and decide which needs to address next? In this episode of Fearless Product Leadership, we learn how product teams should effectively partner with customer-facing teams from deeply experienced product leaders when they answer the question, how do you partner with customer-facing teams in product discovery? Welcome to the Fearless Product Leadership Podcast. This is the show for new product leaders seeking to increase their confidence and competence. In every episode, I ask experienced and thoughtful product leaders to share their strategies and tactics that have helped them tackle a tough responsibility of the product leader role. I love helping emerging product leaders shorten their learning curves to expedite their professional success with great products, teams, and stakeholder relationships. I'm your host and CEO of Fearless Product, Hope Curion. Product teams who value discovery crave firsthand understanding of what matters to customers. They use this insight of unmet needs that become problems to solve and opportunities for delight and competitive advantage in their product development. However, some organizations have friction in their processes, especially when they already have so many, often larger organizations, continuously having conversations with customers. For example, at B2B companies, sales meets with prospective customers, marketing often organizes customer and prospective customer events, newly sold customers work with implementation or onboarding teams to try to get the most value out of the product they purchased quickly, existing customers work with account management on training and troubleshooting, and dissatisfied customers reach out to customer support for issue resolution. All of these customer interactions and teams represent both opportunity and challenges for how the product teams should engage with their customers as part of how they practice discovery. In this episode, you'll learn from six product leaders at B2B and B2C companies who partner with their customer-facing teams, and they will share how they prioritize customer problems to solve, ensure customers can benefit from solutions in discovery and development, effectively message to customers when their wishes and feedback aren't immediately actionable, navigate discovery discussions with customers when sales or support wants to limit access to particular accounts, and involve engineers and other members across functions to deeply understand customers' needs. At the end, I'll share the three techniques I find solidify partnership amongst these teams in discovery and delivery to benefit customers. Fearlessly tackling the question, how do you partner with customer-facing teams in product discovery, are Sabrina Hussain, Product Lead at Shopify, Mark Abraham, Head of Product Engagement at ASOS, Audrey Chang, VP of Product at Pushpay, Ben Newell, VP of Product at CBRE, Rachel Obsler, VP of Product at PagerDuty, and Nate Walkingshaw, Chief Experience Officer at Pluralsight. First, Sabrina Hossein describes how the product and support teams at Shopify partner during development and post-release to identify and address what customers need most and how the product team develops a care package to ensure that customers will quickly benefit from how the product has evolved. So working with customer-facing teams in discovery and actually through every phase of product development is incredibly important. 
like I mentioned before, um, your user and their needs should really be the North Star of your product group. So I get my teams to be very close to our customer-facing teams, especially our support team, through all stages of the product lifecycle. In the discovery phase, our support team joins our initial scoping and ideation sessions because they have a ton of great merchant feedback, and that information helps us to develop our hypothesis and overall plan. Throughout the development of any product, support stays very close to the product team to provide feedback and understand how we're designing and building it. And this enables them to actually create a care package with the overall team support. And that care package is used to train the broader support team and ensure that everyone has a really good grasp of what was built and how to help use users through any questions they may have. The process of creating the care package actually often helps us to suss out if there are any in-product changes that we can make preemptively to ensure that users actually have the most seamless process possible. Once launched, the support team works with our merchants on betas and also through to full general availability. And then post-launch, they gather feedback and they aggregate uh, numbers and different issues and challenges uh, and feedback from our merchants. And they bring that to us. And that helps us to understand what's going well and what could be better. And that information is used to grow the product and start the cycle again if needed. And so this process has been used on every single product I've uh, launched at Shopify. So that would be like Instagram product tagging and the BuzzFeed affiliate tool and all of the channels that we work on and support. I love that you call it a care package. Like I think that's that's a smart way to, to position it. Can you just add um, a little more color around uh, like how that process came to be? Like, did you always use it from the get-go? Was it well-established? Did you evolve into it? Um, and I'm assuming you have quite a large support team. So I'm assuming not 100% of the support team participates all the time. So right. how do you sort of That's choose right. or get the representative feedback, by, but yet enable the teams to move quickly and, and you know, not be burdened by having like, to hear from every single person in support? Right. So we actually have many layers of support. And personally, I think Shopify has one of the best support teams around. And so there's one support team called the Product Support Network. So they're our PSN team. And your product has a PSN person uh, usually assigned to it. And that's how it's worked for me. And that PSN person and deeply, deeply understands the product that we're working on. Uh, again, and they're the ones aggregating the feedback and taking it to the broader group of support. Because again, we have over a thousand people in support, if not more than that, right? So what they do is they, they create this quick care package. We all review it together. We have the videos included. We have screenshots included. And so really it's a step-by-step of how the product works. And then training sessions are held with the broader support group via video, some in person, and then questions and are come back from them. And that's kind of how we refine that as well. And this is something that happened from the get-go or did this, did you evolve into this care package process? So we did have, when I started three years ago, we did have this concept of a care package already. Uh, It was a process that was fairly well established. I would say every time we work on a new uh, product, we iterate maybe a little bit on uh, how often to be involved or what to do, but overall the process is fairly well defined. 
Next, Mark Abraham at ASOS describes why it's important for product teams to embrace the treasure trove of data available by partnering with other customer-facing teams in sales and support through every phase of the product development cycle. Yeah, so in terms of you know how teams that I've been part of, I've been leading, how they work with other customer-facing product teams, there is, there is a natural or there can be a natural tension there where you know, you both want to look after the customer and do good by the customer, but who does what and who owns what? And I say that in inverted commas. I think my first answer to, to that kind of question sounds very cliche, but I think it's very true, which is that it's about building a relationship with those other teams that interact with the customer on a daily basis. And, you know, that's what we do at the end of the day as product people is building relationships and, and influencing with that authority and particularly with those teams or those people, whether it's in sales or customer support, who are at the cold face in a way, because they're interacting with customers on a daily basis and hear their pains and their joys, hopefully, on a, on, a, on a daily basis. I think we need to be conscious of that as product people and, and, and have a certain level of humility uh, towards that, where we do listen and we do take the, the feedback that we get from those teams very seriously and really engage with them early and often. You know. It's, it's very easy to make the mistake of thinking, I'm the product person. I do a few kind of, you know, very smart, lean type discovery tests and I'll find out what the customer problem is. But you'd be sitting on heaps of data already of people who really can tell you not only just the common themes of the kind of common requests or complaints that they get, but also give you a bit of the nuance and the background again. And it's, it's such a treasure grove in of that information that we easily forget about. And particularly if you're, let's say your customer call center is um, elsewhere, it's very easy to forget about. It's not, you know, that happens, right? And in my current role, I'm really encouraging people to, to spend much more time with customer facing teams. You know, I like to sit with customer agents and just sit and see how they want to have phone calls or what kind of queries they get via email, via live chat. It's really important. And then treating those customer facing teams as, and I'm not the biggest fan of the word stakeholder, but you know, they have skin in the game, right? They want customer success as much as we product people, product teams want customer success. So really treating them as a true stakeholder, meaning that from beginning to end and back again, you involve with those customer facing teams being it being at the very discovery phase where you where you really work closely with them to understand customer pains and, and start assessing potential solutions to every time you roll out, you make sure that customer support teams are fully aware of what's coming up and being trained up if necessary. So again, they feel an, an integral part of that product development lifecycle, uh, if you like, rather than just you know a bit of an afterthought. Now, Audrey Chang describes how she partners with the customer-facing teams at PushPay using customer office hours and how she practically navigates when the product teams are not immediately able to act on all the feedback that they receive from customers based on inevitable prioritization and allocation of finite resources. When I think about discovery, um, one of the key partnerships that we have is actually working with our customer-facing team. You know, previously, we were hearing a lot like, hey, I have this feedback from this customer. These customers want this feature. But what it really didn't give us was the why. And so what we decided to do was to really start to partner with our customer-facing teams. And that was with our customer success and actually with our sales team to actually try and incorporate 
incorporate them into our discovery practice and to actually work alongside them as we actually go to build out our product as well. So it's a real true partnership, not just like, hey, we have a meeting, we inform people. We actually bring them on the journey and actually get them to be participants in our journey. And so with our customer facing teams, what we may do is we may partner with them uh, in our, uh, we have uh, something called customer office hours, which is probably a mixture of uh, generative and evaluative research. And so some of it is a little bit like, hey, you know, what's the things that are keeping you up at night? What are the challenges that you foresee? We're trying to look for trends. The other part might be a little bit more about um, our product, what's going well and what's not going well for them and why. Um, And then trying to, then taking those insights and really trying to figure out, do we see any patterns here? And in that research, what we do is actually we partner with our uh, customer-facing teams, they're often invited uh, to be observers in our research. Uh, we share our findings with them. We discuss like, hey, here are the things that we saw. What are the things that you're seeing? Did some of this resonate with you? What we don't want to do is ever dismiss the feedback that they get when they're on their visits. But we also know that sometimes those are, you know, a little bit more biased on the sales call side, right? When you're, you know, there's that saying that if you're selling, you're always selling, right? And if you're researching, you're researching. And I think we feel the same way. And we don't want to dismiss the feedback that comes in from our customers uh, for, through those teams. But we also want to look at them and say, like, hey, where's their bias introduced? And hey, if we think that these are potential areas of problems or some insights, key insights that we have here, could we go and evaluate them further and really determine whether they are, in fact, insights or whether they were things like uh, false objections, let's say. That's awesome. And just a follow-up question on that. When you are working with customer-facing teams and you end up inevitably having feedback that you can't immediately act on, doesn't hit the priority, doesn't align to a goal, not feasible, too small a sample, whatever the reason is, how do you manage that expectation with either the sales team or the customer success team or the customers who've shared that feedback that you can't immediately act on? When we think about, you know, the feedback that we get from our customer-facing teams, you know, they're really, and I, what I really love about them is they're really championing our customers, really trying to put them at the front of the queue and in the front of our minds when it comes to product development. But sometimes what that means is that we're always making trade-offs, different customers, need different things. And when we're looking, and even, you know, our forward market needs different things potentially to our existing customers. And so when we look at that base as a whole, I think that's the challenge of product management is trying to figure out what the right mix is. How do we best serve all of our customers? How do we best, you know, serve new customers? And what are those elements that go in there? And I think that is the challenge of, you know, creating where your resourcing is going to go, the challenge of product management, of discovery. And I think some of the things we talked about in terms of um, investment, which areas will we invest in? That sometimes is a, can be a bitter pill to swallow for um, our customer-facing teams. They want everything for their customers. And, you know, rightly so. But, you know, product development is not an um, infinite resource. And I think what we're trying to achieve is what can we do, what, what decisions can we make that actually best serve everybody with the resources that we have. And so sometimes there are hard decisions. But what we do try to do is to share what our plans are. And because our roadmaps are really centered around customer problems that we're trying to solve, we can really demonstrate, you know, hey, we're trying to solve this problem. That problem, the one that you've raised, kind of falls outside of where our focus area is right now. We're working on this. And if there's a stronger impact that that problem can make, and we start to see that trend, we'll relook at it and see where that might come into our roadmap. But right now, we're focused on this. And, you know, even only the near-term stuff is actually the stuff that we're really confident that we're delivering. Everything else is like 
we think we're going to do this, you know, but we may not depending on, you know, what the outcomes of what we're delivering are, what the change in the landscape in the market is, and where we feel that the, where we can best deliver value to our customers. So sometimes we are having those discussions and often we want to have those discussions together. So quite often I'm having those discussions with both uh, our CS teams and our sales teams in the rooms together, because what we want to do is partner with them. You know, the thing about product management is even though we're responsible for the success metrics of our product, they're responsible for being able to sell them, being able to support them. And what we want to do is make sure that they feel equipped, that they're getting the right things to be able to succeed in their, in their respective areas too. And sometimes that does take a bit of like, compromise on all of our sides to figure out what's the best thing that we can achieve for the organization. And I think that focus on the overall goal is probably the most important thing to align on. And then all the decisions, not that they're easy, but they kind of fall out of that. And people can reason that, yeah, actually that makes sense. Like that we can actually best serve our customers in this way. And yes, we can, that, those are the best decisions for our business. Ben Newell shares how customer facing teams participate in product development using the big pitch a week-long accelerator to vet customer needs and how to solve them using product discovery and validation methods. So one of the most interesting things you asked about and something I've spent a lot of time with is how to involve the customer-facing teams, it's maybe your account management, your sales teams, in the discovery process. Uh, and I, I, I think this is an extremely important thing to consider for product managers. I, I think too often we think we're potentially all knowing and uh, that all the tests and all the work should come from our teams. And when you think about how much interaction these teams have with actual clients versus you as a product manager, um, it can be a, a pretty big gap. I also managed a support team in my time at Reward Style. And I often ask my head of support, I was like, how many customers did you talk to today? He'd say, oh, I don't know, 50? And I'm like, how many do you think I talked to today? Usually the answer was zero, although I knew it shouldn't have been zero. Um, and despite all my best efforts, obviously they were spending way more time with our clients than I was. And so tapping into those teams is critically important. And it's Harder than just saying, oh, we're going to put out a suggestion box and hope that these teams, you know, oh, you can email me anytime and offer different ideas. That, that to me just doesn't really work as well. It also doesn't give an appreciation for kind of the challenges of a product manager and all the things that you have to think through when there's a new idea. So to help in this uh, at RewardStop, we set up an event that we called the Big Pitch. And uh, this was kind of in response to our hack day for our engineering teams, uh, but this was only participated by our customer-facing teams, account management, sales, and our uh, support teams. And we asked them on the first day of the week, we presented, hey, this is the kind of work that we would do as product managers to vet an idea. So we presented, in our case, we used the Lean Canvas as an easy way to say, hey, here's the canvas, here's the kinds of questions you'll have to ask. And so at the start of the week, we want you guys to get into teams, uh, come up with your ideas. Obviously, we expect them to be ideas you've heard over time. They might be new ones, but we imagine there are lots of things you've heard. Take them through that process, and then you're going to present those back uh, to the, the product and engineering teams at the end of the week. So kind of using that template and understanding what you have to think through, uh, present those ideas back to us. And we found this event to be really, really successful. Uh, the teams got really into it. They enjoyed uh, pitching their ideas. They got very creative about what they wanted to do. 
Um, and we had a lot of fun with it. But it had two other outcomes, which I think are really valuable when you think about including those customer-facing teams. One, it gave them an understanding of what we go through as a product team of, yeah, that's an interesting idea, but now that I thought about what it would take to maintain it or grow it or launch it or the kinds of customers and how much we'd have to charge for it to be successful, maybe it's not such a great idea now. Um, things that happen to us often in products, you get a great idea and by the time you think it through, you know, 80% of them aren't worth you continuing to pursue. And secondly, which was somewhat unintended, but was interesting, was that as we presented it back to the engineering teams and the product teams, a lot of the engineers were like, oh, that's actually not that hard to do. Um, and that's a really interesting ROI. And we were able to take some of those ideas and roll them into our hack day. And the engineers were able to take uh, some of those and work with their counterparts on the customer-facing teams, which was a nice set of collaboration, again, that was unexpected. Um, and it gave us an opportunity to vet those ideas a little bit more. In fact, a couple of them we actually turned into production ideas and were able to create you know, small tools or some of the other kinds of things that are pretty straightforward to achieve some of these ideas. And uh, it was a really great way to bring the organization together, help everybody understand what's involved. Uh, and include those teams in the discovery process. Now, Rachel Obsler at PagerDuty shares the differences between the types of discovery product teams initiate around a particular need versus what happens at an account level from the sales and support side, and how her product teams navigate do not call requests for particular customers when requested by sales and support. When we're doing discovery, um, one thing I'll say about the place I'm currently at, PagerDuty, is that we have a great customer base and they're so willing to spend time with us. And so um, we do a lot of customer-facing discovery. People don't do it always the same way. Typically, it is the product manager and the UX designer. Some, most of the time, they do it together. Sometimes they do it separately to divide and conquer. Um, and we do typically do it directly. A lot of times we will let the salesperson or the customer success person know that we're doing it. We may invite them to the meeting. They can attend if they want to. A lot of times they don't. I mean, the salespeople have obviously other things to do, but some of them do want to attend for various reasons, which is totally fine. And so, you know, what I find is that a lot of that discovery ends up being pretty specific. So, you know, when you have a, a person like a customer success person, they're really thinking about the entire account, not like a specific feature that you're thinking of building. And so for that reason, discovery is not always interesting to them in this way when we're doing very specific discovery um, about something we're thinking of building. Now, on the other hand, the customer-facing teams spend a lot of time with the customer and they get a lot of feedback. And the feedback they get is very much from the customer's perspective. Like, I was trying to do this or I want to know if you're planning to do that. A lot of times it is less related to future functionality, but it's more related to things like administration or you know things that, that they're trying to do or they can't quite do that the way that they want to. And so those teams will take in that feedback. We have a lot of different ways that you can ask product for things, file feature requests. For some of our largest customers, they'll actually keep a running list of all the things and we'll provide feedback. So, But I, I view those modes as being somewhat different, right? One is that you're specifically looking at doing something and you want discovery around it, which is separate from the customers using and through the through that point of using, they're not necessarily thinking of like a brand new functionality. They're thinking of what they're using right now and what is not working with it. 
So we take feedback from both of those, but I think they're very different modes of operating. I have not seen a lot of, if any, real friction with the customer-facing team. So there will be occasional times when a salesperson will say, look, we're in the middle of a deal. Can you not touch the account right now until we get this resolved? Or there's an issue right now. Maybe don't reach out for this period of time. It doesn't happen that often. Um, some of the reason for that is that the person that you are working with who may be signing a deal is probably entirely different than the person who's going to give you feedback on a function anyway. So it does not happen that often. But if it does happen, I mean, as I said, we have plenty of people to talk to and we're very happy to not get in the way of something and, and not reach out at that time. Do you have a system? Like, is this managed through a Salesforce or a CRM where you know, like, they are, there's a preference not to reach out to this customer at this time? Or how do you how do you practically manage that so your teams aren't slowed down by trying to do those checks and balances based on where a deal is or where a customer might be having issues? It depends. So, so one way is like when we are specifically doing a beta around a feature. Um, we will often ask the sales teams or put together like just a simple Google sheet and, and say, hey, this beta is going to start. If you have customers that you would like to submit or recommend that you think would be interested, please put them down on this list. That's the easiest way to do it. And then beyond that, if there's specific people that we want to reach out to, I mean, if we have relationships with them, we're not necessarily going to wait or check, right? Because there's a relationship. If it's not a relationship, you're looking for someone for some reason, that customer you think is a good target or you want feedback from that customer for some reason, but you don't know the person already, then that's the time when you would proactively ask the salesperson, hey, I'm going to reach out to this customer. Is there someone you would recommend I talk to? Um, and then that's when they would say, oh, don't call them right now. So that's the situation where I think that would come up. I think that as we get bigger, um, we're going to need a much better system than that. So we recently moved to making these beta spreadsheets standard. So always having the same information in them, having them all live in the same place to make it easier. And then we've also moved towards getting customers. Now that we're a public company, we want customers to sign a beta agreement. We used to have to have them sign it for everything. And now they just sign it once. And we're also including it as part of our regular agreement so that someone signs once. And then from then on, they're on this list. And then all we have to do is say, hey, we have a new functionality. Are you interested in trying it? Yes, great. And we go. So we are moving towards you know, trying to make it a little bit easier to get these betas set up. They are a lot of work to get customers' feedback. And, and of course, actually, that's betas. There's a whole other realm of customer feedback that's user research. It's, it's a lot more open-ended. Right. And then we have the user research team and but they, they also use a similar list. So someone who said, I'm willing to give you feedback is still a good candidate for user research. And so when we get these lists of people that have said, I'm open to giving you feedback and they like to do it, they get a lot of love from us. Finally, Nate Walking Shaw of Pluralsight describes the level of commitment to cross-functional teams participating firsthand in discovery and how they involve the go-to-market teams reviewing the earliest ideas in discovery so as they start to take shape, they are able to test viability for customers and accelerate their own product development velocity. How do product teams or non-customer-facing teams you know, in, involve themselves in, in discovery? So the philosophical approach, right, we use, we use a process called directed discovery. It's not a process. Just think of it like mile markers. <clears throat> and the mile markers kind of consist of three 
components to us. One is voice of the customer. The second one we call CPT, customer preference testing. The human language is just prototype observation. And then the last one is customer confirmation test, which is qualitative you know, research. And, and the reason why this matters so much is that you can listen to customers, you can prototype what you hear them say, but the second you kind of ship something or give it the Viking send-off, you actually have no control, like no control of how they interact. And so, you know, we wanted to shape or build a ton of muscle around like how this actually works, not just inside experience, the experience organization, but across the business. So one, product management, user experience design and engineering, you know, they'll do roughly 60 customer calls per week. Um, if an engineer can't make that call, we actually cancel the interview. So we want the entire team to be present for those interviews. And, there, and you can imagine maybe why that matters so much to us. One, when you have a technical mind, you know, trying to solve a product problem, there most of the time is probably a technical solution that we could get to quicker than some designed solution or some managed solution. So, you know, you get a lot of, you know, tailwinds by making sure that you have those groups of people. Other people we add, like our core competencies content. So a lot of the content organization is on those calls as well. Data science, data engineering, DevOps, SecOps. You know, we try and involve as many, you know, um, folks that are involved holistically, you know, with the creation of, of, of our product. But I think one thing that's important here is, and I, you probably think I'm crazy. So the, the go-to-market teams, so sales and marketing, we do something, you know, every other week where everything that's in discovery, like we have, you know, we have low confidence when we're discovery, like probably sub 20%, like this is a new idea. We have no idea if it's going to be viable. So everything that's in discovery and everything that's in delivery, every two weeks, we share with the entire go-to-market team. The reason why that's so important to us is that I have learned in order for product market fit to have the best odds <clears throat> is that you want as many voices in the middle of the discovery process to find out if it could be viable in market before we ever get there. And if it's not, we want to know that as early as possible. And, you know, the, the problem with that in the past, right, is, is granting trust. I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't had those concerns, but yeah, at companies that I've been at, you know, they never want to show futures. Like they would never want to show future roadmap. You know, it's, it's like taboo to say, hey, like, you know, I want to keep this really quiet and then I want to do a big reveal behind it. And, and that, that philosophically doesn't align for the way that I, that I see product leadership is that I actually want them in the process. And, and here's the, the main takeaway is it, it takes like three or four times for a rep to see something in discovery, go talk to a customer about it way too early, only to find out that we iterated that concept 80%. And then they have to go back in front of the customer and say, hey, so it actually isn't like what I told you. It actually is like this. And, you know, they, they, they will go through that experience a couple of times and find out like, hey, they didn't have the level of confidence. I talked about this a little too early. This actually ended up biting my reputation. You know, I'm going to wait until you start to see the product mature and do a higher confidence interval, and then we'll go discuss it. And we actually do want that behavior because the second we get confident and they see like the product's probably starting to harden itself. We actually want them to go test it with the customer to find out would they actually pay for it. My dad and then our former CRO give me the best line. He's like, you don't start selling until someone says no. And the faster we can find out if someone's going to say no to the product that we're trying to engineer and build, like the better off we are. And it's like just a cost, I mean, a massive cost savings game. 
you know, to, to speed up velocity, speed up knowledge transfer, and then speed up product market fit. I find new product leaders introducing discovery practices to their companies are met with resistance because the work sometimes either feels duplicative, i.e., we talk to customers all the time, we already know what they want, or threatening, i.e., I want to control which customers you speak with so your learnings reinforce what I want. Now, product leaders need to diffuse these concerns by demonstrating their desire to learn quickly and prioritize objectively how to best meet the needs of the most customers so they can achieve their desired business outcome. The product leaders we heard from today shared many great techniques to effectively partner with their customer-facing teams to learn quickly what matters to the customers and turn that into action for the product teams. When I'm consulting with product leaders and teams that do not yet have this partnership well-established, I immediately employ three techniques that I find help with shared understanding and take full advantage of each team's independent customer conversations to expedite the cross-functional team's collaboration. Check out the show notes for this episode to see examples of each of these techniques. First, have a weekly cross-functional meeting reflecting each expert and their moment in the customer journey. This is a core working group where they're sharing what they're learning in each of their functions and roles with different types of customers on the spectrum. For example, in a B2B company, sales shares barriers to sale for different segments, personas, and use cases. The onboarding and implementation team shares barriers to getting clients successfully implemented to begin using the product. The customer success or account management team shares where they see barriers to adoption or getting the intended value out of the product that motivated these customers to purchase in the first place. Product marketing shares how they're supporting sales and product to drive new customer acquisition and address any barriers to effectively telling a believable story that builds customer confidence to accelerate the purchase decision. And product shares how they're discovering and resolving the prioritized customer needs and what they're working on for future value creation. Having a core team with one person from each of these customer-facing functions and their ability to reflect, resolve, and learn from each other for one hour every week What's happening at every moment in the customer journey from their expert perspectives truly helps accelerate learning to successfully drive customer adoption and satisfaction. Second, create visuals to align around the customer and our business goals. And this helps everybody stay focused on what the customer needs, the desired business outcome, and the decisions or unknowns that need to be addressed in discovery in order to meet those customer needs and business outcomes. Of course, my favorite technique for visualizing our potential paths to our desired outcome is using an opportunity solution tree because it helps keep track of what the cross-functional team needs to learn in order to make the best decisions to expedite achieving that outcome. But it's often also important to illustrate in a shared customer journey visual the moment of realization of need for your target customer persona, what info they need to evaluate and make decisions between your product and their alternatives that they could be using to solve for that need, how they practically trial your solution, when and how they might churn out of the product experience, and the moments in their use of your product that turn them into passionate advocates to help accelerate new product sales and adoption. These shared decision-making 
and customer journey visuals align product, sales, marketing, and support teams so they know exactly where they intervene and where the product intervenes in the customer's experience to make the best decisions possible that will ultimately benefit both the customer and your company. Third, first-hand understanding of customer needs. Now, ideally, we would all have first-hand understanding about the various customer insights that we're trying to learn, but speed and reliable information in discovery is the lifeblood for product teams. We want to get just enough information so that we can make an informed decision. Realistically, each member of the product team and other customer-facing partner teams can't participate in every single customer discussion firsthand. So the next best thing to do is to make sure that you're capturing all that goodness, all that evidence in a way that keeps integrity and trust within each of these team members high. If you've got sales teams using gong recordings for their pitches to prospective customers and demos, you can leverage that and also create firsthand understanding. If the product team is doing customer discovery interviews, make sure you can get a video recording or capture and share meaningful quotes, or perhaps you can get screen replays of customers' interactions with your products or prototypes or competitors' products. All of these firsthand observations or recordings of firsthand observations build trust and confidence across the cross-functional team so that they realize that it's not just an opinion. Everything that they're advocating for that a customer needs is grounded in real evidence, and that keeps trust high, but it also expedites progress and integrity in your cross-functional decision-making. I want to say thank you to our senior product leaders, Sabrina, Mark, Ben, Audrey, Rachel, and Nate for sharing their expertise on this episode. If you're a product leader seeking to build stronger collaborative discovery partnerships with your sales, marketing, and support organizations, I'd love to be of help. Contact me on LinkedIn or Twitter or schedule an initial consultation with me using the contact me page at fearless-product.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fearless Product Leadership. If you know a new product leader who would find this podcast helpful, please share it. You can follow me, Hope Gurion, on LinkedIn and Twitter, or subscribe to the Fearless Product Leadership podcast on your favorite podcast platform to be notified of new episodes. You will find transcripts, video versions of each episode, as well as more information on my Fearless Product coaching and consulting services by visiting my website, fearless-product.com. Fearless Product. Confidence through evidence.